Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. My last memoir, Hourglass, which as I said, is about, about my marriage and about, about my family, my, 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 my current family, my life as a mother, but much more about my marriage. When my son read, I mean, there's a lot of, difficult stuff in hourglass about insecurity and disappointment and nervousness and, you know, financial insecurity in particular and ups and downs. And I was nervous about giving it to my son. I was very conscious when I was writing it that I did not want to burnish our lives. They, they, they look great and they are great, but they are absolutely um, fraught and imperfect. And as most artists lives are, and I wanted that to come through. I didn't want it to be a grim tale because it's not by any measure, but I also didn't want it to be burnished in that sort of like Instagrammy kind of way. And so when I gave the book to my son, uh, he was reading it in galleys and we were away. We were actually for the first time at our conference in Italy, for the first time he, he couldn't attend it because it was his junior year in high school. And he texted me when he was reading Hourglass and he, he texted me, I'm reading your book. I love it. It's helping me fall asleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> I texted him back and I was like, are you being a wise ass? Like, you're like, ha ha ha. And he wrote, he wrote back, no, it's making me feel like you and dad are close by. And uh, it was the single best response that I received of all of the responses I got to Hourglass because it made me realize that I had accomplished what I hoped to in a human way, which is that my own son who has a front row seat to, you know, this life of ours was able to recognize it in the pages of that book and say, yes, that's my mom and dad. And to feel not scared about that, but to feel really buoyed and hopeful about I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Danny, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here for a second time. Uh, your book, Still Writing, was one of the most informative books uh, in my own career and my own practice as a writer. It's one of those things I return to on a regular basis. I don't think I have any other book that I have as many underlying passages in. Uh, but before we get into your work and everything that you're up to, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Mm, that's such a great question. Uh, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Um, my dad was a stockbroker. He worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so he was a business guy. I had no idea what that meant growing up. All I knew was that he left, he did something that, you know, was not tangible. And then he would come home at the end of the day. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, I had no sense of what my dad did for a living. I just knew, I knew what to call it. I knew where it happened. My mom had been in advertising before she married my dad. 
Um, so she had her own small ad agency in New York, which was a really unusual thing for a woman of her generation. She was born in the 1920s. So this was, um, yeah, just really unusual. And she gave it up when she married my father, which I think is something, I don't know whether she regretted it, but I think it definitely led to a lot of creative frustration on her part. She had a lot of creativity and very few outlets. And I, I think I absorbed that and I recognized that. So when it came to my own path, it's not like I decided one day um, I'm going to be a writer and um, well, I did eventually, but I didn't know that you could be a writer when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I read all the time. I wrote all the time, but I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any artists. My parents didn't have friends who were writers or artists. So it really wasn't until I got to college, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, and there were some amazing writers who taught there. Uh, the writer Grace Paley, the great American short story writer, she lived in the city and she would you know, drive up or take the train up to Sarah Lawrence and teach a couple of days a week. And the rest of the time, she, uh, she wrote her stories and she was uh, a wife and a mother and a political activist and just started opening my eyes and seeing that it was possible for people to do this with their lives. I didn't know that it was going to be possible for me to do this with my life, but I saw that it was possible. And so um, I began to take steps in that direction, um, all the while, you know, not having any confidence that I would be able to actually do this. I think becoming any kind of artist is such a leap of faith because there's no rule book. There's no there, there really aren't guidelines for it. Um, and, and there are no guarantees. So, you know, one has to be willing to live with a fair amount of a com combination of uncertainty and almost hubris, like thinking like, oh, I can do this impossible thing. Hmm. You know, it, it's funny, like I said, I've underlined so much of the book. And I, I remember underlining this one line in particular, you said, I love my parents, but I didn't want to be like them. Hmm. And I think I underlined that because I kind of felt the same way. Uh, when I looked at the lives that my parents have built and the careers that they've built, I thought this is just not how I want to live. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I wonder, you know, is that something you only recognize in retrospect or is that something that you uh, had decided when you were young? Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. I haven't thought about that line in a long time. Um, I think I knew I didn't want to be like, it's more than I didn't want to be like them. I think I knew that I wasn't like them. And, um, a lot of what I didn't want was a kind of, I felt there was this kind of stultifying unhappiness and sort of having missed the boat. Uh, you know, my mother, uh, when she was 80, when she died and on her deathbed, uh, she said to me, uh, you know, but I was just getting my act together. <laughs> and that was such a lesson for me. And I think, I think that even though I know that much more clearly and more um, poignantly in a way as an adult, I think as a child, I, I really did have that sense that I was different and that I wanted to be different. Yeah, I know you talk a lot about your mother. Uh, in this book in particular, there are a lot of lines that, that caught my attention. And this one in particular really struck me. You said, my mother can be found in most of my work. She has been more than in any other person in my life, my muse. It has been said, the blessing is next to the wound. All of my life, I've attempted to peel back the layers. I do so not out of anger or recrimination or revenge, but rather in the hope 
tears are in my eyes as I write this, that under all those layers, I will find something tender and genuine, something that I can hold on, hold in my hands like a fragile baby bird. There, there, I'll whisper, if I ever locate it, we didn't do such a good job of this. Let's try again. Mm. And I wonder throughout your life and throughout your writing, is there some sense of uh, attempting to reconcile this that has happened? Oh, I think so much of my writing has been an attempt to reconcile. I think um, I have been, uh, you know, much of my work, even my fiction, and certainly all of my memoirs have been an, an inquiry in a way, except for my last, my, la- my most recent memoir, Hourglass, is really the first book that I've written that I wasn't writing, uh, in which I wasn't writing from the perspective or point of view of a daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was much more from the perspective and point of view of both a wife and a mother myself. Um, but up, up until Hourglass, I think all of my work was in one way or another, whether subconsciously, unconsciously, uh, or consciously, or some combination of all three, an attempt to understand um, you know, who my mother and I were to each other, who my father and I were to each other, who they were to each other. It was, it was mysterious to me and it felt urgently important to try to understand it. It felt like, um, you know, the work of my life in some way to kind of shape all that into a narrative. Um, even though I'm not, you know, ironically enough, I'm really not a backward looking person. I don't, I don't sort of uh, reside in the past, but uh, at, at all, I, I don't live in a place of regret or even really of memory, or certainly not of recrimination. But in my work, that's—I don't think that we choose what we work on as artists. I think it chooses us. Um, I really do, and uh, I've never been led wrong by that. Um, I've, I've been led wrong by my own mind when I decide I should write something because it's a good idea, as opposed to just allowing um, my creative imperatives to take me uh, where, uh, where I need to go. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you're a parent. What impact has uh, the relationship that you had uh, with your parents had on the way that you're raising your son? Oh, well, I think I made a very conscious choice um, from the beginning with my son to sort of form my family life in like sort of as, as counter to the family life that I had growing up. I mean, I grew up in a house filled with uh, a lot of secrecy and also a very cold place, a very sort of parched place. And, you know, when I realized my son was going to be an only child as I was, I sort of doubled down on kind of the opposite of that. Um, there, he's, he's been raised in a home where there are no secrets. Although I've got to say, I think when you grow up and both of your parents are writers, <laughs> it's like <laughs> I had already, there's an entire body of work. I mean, I couldn't have kept anything from him had I wanted to, but I didn't want to. Um, it's been more a matter of like when he learns things and how he learns them and when he chooses to learn them. Uh, about his parents and particularly about his mother who has written so extensively about, uh, you know, her own personal history, but also just a place of warmth and of 
you know, hopefully, you know, relaxation and kind of ease. And, and also, I, because of what we do, um, I mean, as I said, I was raised in, 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 in a world where there were no artists. He's been raised, and this wasn't on purpose, this was just because this is our lives. He was raised in a world where there are like only artists. Um, everywhere he, I mean, our friends are all, uh, m- many of them are, are writers and artists and we uh, teach at writers conferences or we, we created our own writers conference that meets in Italy every spring. And my son has been going to these writers conferences since he was six years old. So he's grown up surrounded by amazing writers. And I think that that's had a huge impact on him. Has it informed his decisions about what he's chosen to do as a career? Has it informed your uh, decisions on what to encourage? Because this is another thing that really struck me. And I think if my parents had read this in high school, they would have said, there's no way in hell you're going to go do this for a living. You say the writing life is full of risk. When we set our phones on our, when we set our sights on this life, we're staking our future on the contents of our own minds on our ability to create and continue to create. We have nothing but this. No 401k, no pension plan, often no IRA, no plans, God knows, for retirement. We have to accept living with profound uncertainty. So I guess the two questions are, one, knowing this, what has it uh, encouraged you to tell your your son about his own career choices? And how do you navigate that uncertainty without losing your mind? Right. Oh, these are great questions. Okay, so, so regarding the first question, um, you know, my, my, my son's going to college in the fall. He's starting college in the fall. And when he was first looking at colleges, my, my husband's a filmmaker. And um, my son, at the very beginning of looking at colleges, was really interested in applying to film school. And we both strongly discouraged him <laughs> from applying to film school um, as an undergraduate. Um, and both of us felt really strongly that he should go get a great liberal arts education and open himself up to everything, to all of the, you know, I mean, in in high school, you just have to take what you have to take. You're taking calculus and all that kind of stuff, whether or not it's going to have any, um, any, any usefulness in your life. And, um, you know, when you go to a good liberal arts college for the first time, you are exposed to all sorts of courses in a course catalog that are, um, you know, that are just mind expanding. I'm not saying calculus isn't mind expanding. I'm just saying that our, that our, you know, the choice, the choice becomes his. And so we really encouraged him to, um, to go in that direction, which he is. And uh, in, in other words, going to a, a really wonderful liberal arts college. Um, he, it, you know, I guess I want him to, have a sense of realism about what the life of an artist is. And, you know, it's interesting because my last memoir, Hourglass, which as I said, is about, about my marriage and about, about my family and my, 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 my current family, my life as a mother, but much more about my marriage. When my son read, I mean, there's a lot of difficult stuff in Hourglass about insecurity and disappointment and nervousness and, you know, financial insecurity in particular and ups and downs. And I was nervous about giving it to my son. I was very conscious when I was writing it that I did not want to burnish our lives. They, they, they look great and they are great, but they are absolutely um, fraught and imperfect. And as most artists' lives are. 
And I wanted that to come through. I didn't want it to be a grim tale because it's not by any measure, but I also didn't want it to be burnished in that sort of like Instagrammy kind of way. And so when I gave the book to my son, uh, he was reading it in galleys and we were away. We were actually for the first time at our conference in Italy for the first time he, he couldn't attend it because it was his junior year in high school. And he texted me when he was reading hourglass and he, he texted me, I'm reading your book. I love it. It's helping me fall asleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) I texted him back. I was like, are you being a wise ass? Like, you're like, ha ha ha. And he wrote, he wrote back, no, it's making me feel like you and dad are close by. And uh, it was the single best response that I received of all of the responses I got to Hourglass because it made me realize that I had accomplished what I hoped to in a human way, which is that my own son, who has a front row seat to, you know, this life of ours, was able to recognize it in the pages of that book and say, yes, that's my mom and dad. And to feel not scared about that, but to feel really buoyed and hopeful about that. So I don't think he has a false idea about what the life of an artist is. Um, I don't think, but certainly we've both been really successful, even though of course there's still insecurity. I mean, I understand every time I have a book come out that that is a very, very, very small percentage of the people who do this. It's their, you know, it's everybody's dream to have that happen. And, you know, my husband, when he makes a film and it actually, you know, hits the screen, it's also like, oh my God, you know, almost everything crashes and burns. And, you know, you've gotten to this point, you've made, you've made this movie. And, and so, so my son has seen a lot of that. And I feel like it's my job to make sure that he is realistic about what it means to go into a life in the arts and, um, and, you know, and, and how to build one, if that's what he ends up doing. He may not. He may go into, he's interested in government. He's interested in philosophy. He's interested in psychology and in social justice, thank goodness. So there are a lot of things I think that he um, could end up doing. So that was the answer to the first part of your question. The, the second question about um, living living with, uh, you know, the, the kind of seesaw of, um yeah, of, of not knowing what's next. You know, at this point in my life, you know, in midlife, what I feel most of the time is that this is a huge part of what keeps me um, very alive. And, um, you know, I have friends who have interesting work that they do that's not, you know, creative, you know, artistic work per se but it's interesting work that they love, but they want to retire at some point. And they also have this feeling of essentially, this is what I do. There aren't going to be any big surprises like day in, day out. This is what my life looks like um, until I retire. I, I don't have that. And my husband doesn't have that. Um, there is always the possibility of something fantastic happening. And there's also the possibility of, um, you know, grave disappointment, but I, 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 I somehow have been finding this way of certainly I have my moments, but of holding all that fairly lightly in my hands and realizing, I mean, I have a meditation practice, which probably helps. I meditate for 20 minutes every morning, but there really is that feeling of, um, of 
understanding just how um, ephemeral all of it is. And the fact that I get up, you know, I get to get up in the morning and do work that I love and that I get to bring that work out into the world and that it, it gets to connect with people and I get to connect with people around that and that I get to travel around the world talking about it and, you know, and presenting about it and teaching is, I mean, it's an incredible privilege. So I guess it balances out the, the other um, you know, insecurity and frustration and, you know, the things that go along with that, that, that are its sharp underside. And I guess also for people who do this kind of, kind of work, it's like, where, where is the fulcrum there? Like, where is the balance uh, or not balance, but for me, the percentage is much greater in the satisfying part than the dissatisfying. So, uh, you know, I, I've started reading a lot more memoirs recently and even biographies. And one of the things I wonder, uh, especially uh, with being the kind of, kind of writer that you are, how do you find this uh, balance between telling the truth and respecting the boundaries of the people that you include in your work, particularly people like your son and your husband? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think with my son and my husband, I am, I am, am the most conscious of um, being aware of boundaries. With my husband, um, Hourglass was really the first time that I wrote about him. In fact, my memoir, Devotion, when it came out, people would say to me, like, where's your husband in this book? <laughs> and my husband didn't belong in that book. He just didn't have that much to do with what I was exploring in that book. So he wasn't really in it. When, when I wrote Hourglass, I realized that I wanted to write a book that really explored marriage from the standpoint of being inside a long and committed and happy marriage. But the first thing I did was ask my husband if, if that was okay. And if he had said it wasn't, I wouldn't have written the book. I felt very clear about that. Um, it was, my marriage was more important to me than writing that book. Mm -hmm. um, and he's also my first reader. So as I was writing Hourglass, I was regularly sharing it with him and you know he and i were very much engaged in the creative process of wanting it to be the best book that it could be so that felt that felt very clear to me i mean i was concerned when hourglass was about to come out with whether people would misunderstand it whether whether they would get it whether they would whether they would read it as the very grown-up love story that i intended it to be and for the most part, they really did. And it was a very satisfying, very, very satisfying experience that way. In terms of my son, from the moment he was born, I was aware that he had not asked to be born to a mother who was a writer and that I needed to be protective of him. And what that meant for me and the way that I have always thought about it is I never wanted to write anything that I thought he might someday as an adult man turned to me and say, I wish you hadn't written about me or I wish you hadn't written that about me. So that's been my own personal litmus test is nothing embarrassing, nothing exposing, nothing uh, too personal about him. Now that said, he's very much grown up as being someone who's in my book, you know, in, in, in various books he was in, he was in Devotion. He was in Still Writing. He was in Hourglass. He's in, he's in my latest book. In fact, my latest book, which comes out in January, um, we just got advanced readers editions. And my son posted a picture on his Instagram story today that showed him 
you know, sitting in a cafe reading, or he showed a picture of the advanced readers edition. And it said something like, every few years, I get to read Danny Ryder's latest memoir. I promise I'm not looking for my name in it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a great sense of humor about the whole thing. But also, he's had the strange experience of people coming up to him and saying, Oh, you're so much older than I thought you'd be because they had just read a book in which he was six. Yeah. Um, you know, so he has a kind of funny, odd public you know, life as a character in my books, but he, 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 he enjoys it. And I think doesn't feel exposed by it. I think he just feels proud of it. And, um, and I'm, you know, and, and I hope that's the case. It certainly is right now the case, but I feel that I've protected him. And, 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 you know, listeners may be wondering about, I mean, I didn't feel that way, the same need to protect my parents or some of my other relatives or ex-boyfriends or, you know, people who are grownups. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't feel the same sense of responsibility. Now, I don't know how I would have felt had my dad been alive when I became a writer. I mean, I adored him and I, <coughs> excuse me, very much wanted, um, you know, to, you know, to, to have him be proud of me and to honor him. So I don't know. I mean, we can't even go there, right? Because my dad's death is part of what made me a writer. So I, I have no idea. If my dad had lived, maybe I would have been something else uh, in my life. But, uh, and my mom, I had such a contentious relationship with her that in a way, the fact that I did write about her, that she was my muse in certain ways, it felt to me like I was in battle with her. And she was, you know, she was in battle with me and writing was where I could find a way to form and understand um, and, and create a shape around what it was to be her daughter, which was a very difficult thing. I mean, I write and still writing toward the end that writing saved my life, um, you know, that it was both my disease and my cure is my disease and my cure. But I really do believe that writing saved my life. And it saved me in many, many ways from being my mother's daughter. Um, and, and so I never felt horribly guilty about writing about her because, or writing about my relationship with her, um, because it felt like it was what saved me. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So uh, I want to talk about one other aspect of this, and that is the, this notion of patience. You've been at this for a really long time, uh, from what I know, and then just from having dug into your body of work. And it, what's interesting, I mean, part of what I, I think w- the message that I really wanted to get across in, in my upcoming book was the value of creativity for its own sake, but also to make an argument for the patience that's required to actually get to a point where you're capable of producing something of value. And I remember this one particular story that you mentioned in Still Writing about a young student who basically you said was a stellar student and she asked if she should get an agent. Uh, and then you said no. And surprisingly, you know, she had, had not surprising to you. She had an agent and even got a book deal. And I remember this description of her, uh, which really struck me. She ricocheted from the sacred to the ordinary and back again, jammed erudite references into brief asides, created worlds within worlds. 
first off, how in the world do you create a sentence like that? Um, like, no, I don't think in my mind I would have connected the word ricochet with a person, but it's so beautifully written. Uh, so I had to ask you one about the sentence, but also about the story of that woman. Mm. It's so interesting to hear my, my, my own sentences <laughs> quoted back to me because, you know, I think when, when one finishes a book, one feels, I have no idea how I did that. Mm. I always do. And I listen to you read that sentence. And I think, wow, that's a really good that's a really good sentence. I wrote that sentence. Wow. <laughs> truly, truly. Um, so I, I mean, I, language is like music for me. Um, I feel my way through sentences. Um, I don't think my way through sentences. Um, and, and so there's something that's very, uh, yeah, about like f- the juxtaposition of words and of sounds and of rhythms. Um, and, and then the kind of chiseling them into meaning. You know, I, I had a professor in, in graduate school who once said to me, you know how to write a really beautiful sentence. You just need to make sure it means something. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it was like one of the best things anybody had ever said to me because I had to learn how to take that poetic sensibility and also really, really put my thinking cap on. You know, do both. Do both at once. Um, so... That's in terms of the sentence. In terms of the student, um, yeah, that, that's a story that I that I that I sometimes tell, and that I will whip out and tell. A, in fact, I just told a version of it recently in a workshop because it's my experience. Increasingly, given the speed and the noise of our culture, that people who want to become writers are are often so driven by ambition and anxiety and the feeling that there must be some sort of path or template or system, or, you know, if you do these 10 things, or if you get this degree, or if you network in this way, or if you have X number of follows on followers on social media, or, you know, whatever the thing is, then, um, then you'll, you'll be successful. And, um, I see that go wrong so often and I see people, I see people pushing, uh, so often to, uh, get themselves out there to get their work out there and to live, uh, sort of very publicly in certain ways, especially on social media, um, which has kind of become the new, the new blogging in a way. Um, but way before they have any business being, out there, you know, it's like that quiet and those years of, I mean, the idea of apprenticeship, the idea of um, books taking a long time, is so. Um, uh, it, it's like it's just something that many many people starting out don't understand, and and so the story of of this young woman in my this was at NYU in the MFA program um, many years ago twenty. 20 years ago, I would say it was this incredible class of writers. They were super talented. It was a really unusual class. And there were a bunch of writers in it. who I had no doubt were going to go on and have, um, lives as writers. And, um, she was, you know, burning with talent, but so were some of the others. Hers was more obvious. It was more kind of was kind of incandescent and show offy, uh, but it was real. And 
So she got this book deal and it was for a lot of money. And there was such a sense of, um, of envy and competition um, in, in, in the class, uh, in the workshop. And I had other students who were in tears in my office, just feeling like if it's happened for her, that means it's never going to happen for us. And so like fast forward, let's just fast forward a decade from then. Um, she, her book came out, it had not been sold to a particularly good publisher and she wasn't well edited and the book wasn't ready. They rushed it out. They, you know, it was just, wasn't ready. And so it didn't really have a great publication and it didn't have a very long life. And it was part of a two book contract and she never wrote the second book. And she ended up owing her publisher back tons of money. And, um, as a, as a very, very sad footnote, uh, or postscript to that, she passed away, um, at, at the age of 40. Um, she's died of a heart attack. She had been a junkie and I think she had, um, I think she had a, you know, a, a compromised, um, physical self, but she, she died. And, and, and that book, you know, that still has a cult following, but most people have never heard of it and have never heard of her. And then at the same time, in that group of really talented writers, a decade later, three, four, five of them, uh, all began to publish and publish well and publish regularly and, you know, several of them have extremely successful careers as writers, and um, and it's a story of of, of uh, yeah of a kind of patience and um, of a of a willingness to sit in the not knowing, to stay in that place of you know writers want to have crystal balls, they want to see um, you know, and I I I I, I fall into that category too. I would like to know what's going to happen with my new book and how it's going to go. And, um, you know, I have all sorts of fantasies. I'm, you know, meditating in the morning and suddenly I'll realize that I've drifted off into some fantasy or worry about what's going to happen six months from now. And that's, that's just the, like, it's a, it's a, it's a tortoise and hare story really. Um, but that's, that, that's the story from, from still writing. And it's, um, it's the starkest one I know, but there are many, many others of, of really just people rushing out there before, before they should. It's interesting because I, I had a conversation about two years, maybe four or five years ago with a woman named Betsy Rappaport about the possibility of doing a book. And she's told me, she said, you're not ready. And I was really mad when she told me that, but I realized mm -hmm. that that was a huge gift because she gave me another two years to develop the actual habits and, and routines and systems to actually be able to do the work required to produce a book. Right, right. No, Exactly. And I am regularly in the position of telling people that. Um, I, in, the, in the past week, I have probably had to tell three people a version of that. Um, and it's never something um, that I relish doing. Um, and I am you know, very conscious of my bedside manner when I do. But you know, it, 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 it takes what it takes. And um, every, every book has its own trajectory in its own path. And there are books that take 10 years to write. And there are books that take six months to write. And there are books that take a lifetime to write. And uh, it goes back to the idea of, of that not being what you choose, but what chooses you. So one of the things that I, I do want to ask you about is it seems like throughout the course of your career, you've had sort of really 
big moments in the spotlight with books becoming wildly successful. You've ended up on Oprah and then you had books that that didn't do as well. But I think for me, the question is not so much how your external world changes when something like landing yourself on Oprah happens, but what happens internally? Um, what is the story that you tell yourself after that? And how do you keep your ego from getting involved uh, in something like a moment as big as being on Oprah? Mm. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, I have never, you know, for, you know, for better, you know, or for worse, um, or both, um, have have bought into my own um, image or anything like that. I don't even really. I almost am willfully blind to what it is. Um, I mean, I remember calling my husband once from the green room of some place where I was about to go, like either on stage or on some TV thing that, you know, was scary to me. And I was getting nervous. I was getting stage fright. And I called my husband and I said, you know, just I'm nervous. You know, what can you tell me? And he said, you're Danny fucking Shapiro. And I was like, what's that? And I ended up like taking a little poll of all of my, you know, my, my friends who have very, very successful lives as, you know, artists or movie stars or whatever. And I said, do you ever feel, do you ever like brush your teeth in the morning and think like, Hey, I'm Jamie fucking Curtis, you know, or whatever. Um, I hope it's okay to curse. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but the, the, the idea of ever thinking of, I mean, it's, it made me laugh and it made me do my own little like research about that among my, among my friends. But I, I mean, I absolutely understood that it was a huge deal to go on Oprah, but what I, what I felt more than anything when I did and in its aftermath was what an opportunity it was to share my work. Um, and, uh, to, you know, to, to, yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel like now my life has changed. I've never had a moment where I have, I, where I, I, that I could pinpoint and say, here, here is where my life changed or here is where, um, I became more successful or here is where I became less successful or any of that. I think it's more like that, 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 you know, metaphor of filling up a bathtub, one drop of water at a time. Mm -hmm. And at some point you, you've got, you can take a bath. Um, it feels like at the point in my career that I am now that, you know, I've amassed some readers because of just this sort of slow and steady work that I've done. And, um, and those readers are increasingly loyal to me or interested in my work. And it, again, it feels just like just, just about doing the work. And so, so I don't really have, I mean, every once in a while something will happen that will make me realize that, that, that I have some measure of, of, of worldly success or that people know who I am or, you know, stuff like that, but it really doesn't affect the way that I think about myself or how I live or how I walk through my days or how I approach the page, which may be, the most important thing I can say about that, because I feel like I've, I've known writers and, and maybe it has something to do with the fact that my first books absolutely came and went without a trace. My first three novels, people think slow motion is my first book. Slow motion was my fourth book. It's the book that put me on the map for the first time 
um, and got a fair amount of really wonderful attention. But I had written three novels and published them. They were published by Doubleday. They were, you know, they came out, they got some reviews, uh, some people read them, but I absolutely did not have a, you know, high profile in the literary world. And in many ways, I think that is a lesson about anxiety and patience that I learned the hard way, because when I was in graduate school and I was writing my first novel, I really wanted to sell that book while I was still in graduate school. I had a lot to prove to myself and to my family and to the people around me, I felt. And so I did. I did sell it while I was still in graduate school. You know, so I was that young woman that I was just talking about in a way. You know, I did get an agent. I did sell it. It wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Um, the difference is that I kept writing um, and I wrote a second novel and then I wrote a third novel that was actually pretty good. Uh, and then I wrote slow motion and I matured as a writer. So I didn't have that. I didn't have that early success or that. I, I wonder sometimes about first, I think when a writer has a first book that is a, an enormous success and then is able to transcend that and go on, go back into the cave go back into, you know, the, the, that dark and quiet place and write the next one. That is a true triumph of character, um, artistically and humanly speaking, to be able to turn then the volume on what, what, you know, what the world is saying, the world's pronouncing you a genius. Well, can you go back into your cave and not be a genius? Can you go back into your cave and, and be, um, you know, just, just be the person who is, at the beginning of that next book, I mean, I, I remember, and I don't think she'd mind my telling you this story. My, Jennifer Egan is one of my best friends. And when she won the Pulitzer Prize, one of the first thoughts I had is this is not going to change her. She is, she is a, a creative and um, sort of egoless human being to the bone. And, you know, Goon Squad was this enormously, enormously successful book that like, checked every box of what can be a success for a book. And then she went back in the cave and she spent the next seven years writing Manhattan beach, a completely different kind of novel. And there wasn't one moment where she believed, you know, Oh, in fact, it was the opposite. It was like, I'll, you know, her, her feeling was now I'm at the bottom of the mountain again, and I'll probably never achieve heights like that again, as instead of buying into um, the hype. And I do know a lot of people who have, who have bought into the hype. And what happens is, their work really suffers. Hmm. It's such a, a it's great such example, a, truly what it means to create for an audience one. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Um, there's one other question that I have about this. How do you uh, detach yourself from the need for validation when in fact, uh, something that you've spent a lot of time doing in private is actually going to be for public consumption. Uh, so that's one question. And then finally, the other, other piece is I think that the thing that I have, have come to realize, and I think you and I share this in common, uh, somebody asked me the other day, how does it feel to be done or, or how does it feel to be holding this book in your hand? And I, I said, you know, to be honest, the time I would much rather be in than the book being finished is being right in the middle of it. Because I think the the thing that I realize is that when you're successful commercially with your creative work, the reward is not that you're successful commercially, but that you get to keep doing the work. Yes. Yeah. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding in agreement with everything that you just said. So the first part, and, and, and also let me just say, um, your book arrived in yesterday's mail and it is so beautiful. They did a gorgeous job <laughs> well, with I'm it. notorious for making people work hard when it comes to anything visual. So, yeah. Well, that's good. And, and thank you. Congratulations. Um, so in terms of validation, I don't, I don't have a simple or even a clear answer about that because I can fall into that as quickly as anyone. Um, what I, what I do try to do is stay away from the, um, the, the sort of noise of it, you know, the, uh, the checking of numbers on online or the reading of, um, you know, customer reviews or, or that kind of thing, because I don't think it's helpful. Um, it's there, there's just a lot of, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting for people to be able to have that forum to say whatever they want to say about books, but I don't think it's necessarily helpful for the writer who can just be talk about ricocheting, you know, the writer could just be like buffeted from, you know, from opinion to opinion to opinion in a way that, um, is, um, I think probably nothing but chipping away, um, at the creative soul and spirit. Um, I do read, I do read my reviews. Um, some writers don't or claim they don't. Um, I want to know what's going on out there that people are reading. Um, you know, so if there, I mean, I, there's a great story about Joyce Carol Oates that, uh, that I once heard, which was that she was sitting at um, her breakfast table with her husband, Ray, and they were, she was reading the paper. No, Ray was reading the paper. She was eating breakfast. And he said, Oh, Joyce, there's a review of your new novel in the New York times today. And she said, well, I'm not reading it. And he said, what do you mean? You're not going to read it. And she said, if it's a good review, it'll ruin my writing day. And if it's a bad review, it'll ruin my writing day. But either way, I plan to have a writing day. And that's astounding discipline. And probably one of the reasons why she's as prolific as she is. But the, she said, it's just opinion. It's opinion. And I have had reviews that I have loved and have, you know, just made me weep with joy. I've had reviews that I've hated and that I've wanted to go buy every single copy of the newspaper off the newsstands and make sure that people <laughs> read it. It's online. Um, and, you know, the, the way that I think of that now is that there are four kinds of reviews, four kinds of book reviews. There is the good, good book review, which means it's a good review and you learn something from reading it. There's the bad, good book review, which is that it's a good review, but it's stupid. Uh, and you just read it and just think, well, this person didn't really get my book, but it's a good review. <laughs> then, there's the, then there's the good, bad review, which is the kind that's really painful because you read it and there's a feeling of, oh, gosh, I can see how this critic saw my book this way, but it's not, it's not a good review and I get it. And then the bad, bad review, which is just it's a bad review and it's just stupid. So... That's it. There you have it. It's those four <laughs> possibilities. And every review falls into one of those four categories. Um, so, man, what was it? What was, what was I mean, it? I guess it was really about how do you deal with uh, validation more than anything else or, or let go of this need for validation yeah, I mean, when you're creating. Uh, and I, I think we were both talking about the process itself being what's rewarding. Yeah. I mean, being in the middle of a book, I always... I always tell my students that when they're in the last third of a book, which is the point where 
The ending is in sight. You might even know or think you know what it is. And there's a point where the universe starts to conspire to help you. And, you know, you'll hear a snatch of dialogue or you'll read something or something will be on the radio or there'll be a bit of music or everything will conspire in the direction of helping you to finish that book. And that is like just the, 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 the best feeling in the world when that happens. And that's, that's the best part. The best part is not publication. The best part is not, you know, when the book hits the stores, because all of that, that all of those next steps, I mean, they're wonderful and they're better than the alternative, but everything about that sets up the comparative, the grasping, the wanting more, nothing's ever enough. I have a friend um, who published a novel a couple of years ago, um, very successful. Um, and uh, the Times gave it a great review and it was late. The review was late in coming. So he was nervous that there wasn't going to be a review. And then there was the review and he was just like, his main feeling was just profound relief that you could like check that box. He had gotten the Times review and the review was good. And I totally, totally knew that feeling. Um, you, the, a writer in the middle of a publication is in that state of just wanting. And the reason for the wanting is not because the writer is an egomaniac. The reason for the wanting is because so much has gone into writing that book. So much of that writer, you know, it's that the, the, you know, the writer's life's blood has gone into creating that book and you just want it to get out there in the world, but it does create a lot of grasping and anxiety which is why it's not the best part. So funny because you're talking about reviews. I only can quote you one of my reviews by memory. And it's from the woman who wrote me a two-star review and said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. Uh-huh. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah. And you remember it's the that only review I remember because- in a book that had something like hundreds of five-star reviews. That's the one that I can quote to you by memory. That's right. And that's why I don't read my customer reviews because that that feeling that person wanted you to read that review and feel badly yeah and that's and that's part of what's difficult and complicated about you know this this culture of anonymous reviewing because people can say whatever they want to say um Brene Brown has this great line about um you know that kind of um the vulnerability of being you know, sort of in the spotlight in that way, being the one who's being reviewed essentially. And she said, you know, she always feels when something like that happens, like, come on out here into the light, come stand here, you know, be in the light with me, say it to my, like, like it's, it's easy to shout things from the shadows and it's not easy to be the person who's kind of withstanding that. Um, It is part of the price of doing business and it is part of, you know, the, part of what happens when, uh, when someone, you know, it could, it could definitely be said, and I'm sure some listeners are probably thinking, yeah, but that's part of what you sign on for when you're, when you're, you know, putting something out there in public. And that's true. But I guess the real question is, um, how that is going to impact on any kind of creative choices or, um, intention moving forward. And if it does, if it's sort of, muddies the waters, then it's probably best to kind of stay away from uh, that, that particular court of public opinion. 
Wow. Uh, well, this has been truly beautiful and uh, poetic. Um, I think you, you really kind of reinforced the, the message of my own book with, with so many of your words. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. I think... When someone is fully inhabiting their own truth, I mean, a couple of lines from the Gnostic Gospels just came to me. um, And those lines are, um, if you bring forth what is within you, I'm sorry, if you bring forth what, yes, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, um, what you're not bringing forth will destroy you. I totally butchered that. It's not the exact language. Uh, you can look it up in Elaine Pagel's book, Gnostic, the Gnostic Gospels. But that's the idea that I remember first hearing that and it just stopped me absolutely cold. And I think um, when someone feels un- unique and unmistakable, it's because they are inhabiting their own truth. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and uh, poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything you're up to? Mm, um, well, uh, they can go on my website, which is Danny Shapiro, D-A-N-I Shapiro.com. Or my favorite social media is my Instagram. And on Instagram, I'm just Danny Writer, D-A-N-I awesome. Writer. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.